Jesus teaches the Sermon on the Mount and he elevates morality, doesn't lower it. He says, you, you know, don't do that. You think that bad behavior is a problem? If you do it in your heart, you've done it. And everyone's like, oh my gosh. When he comes down from teaching the Sermon on the Mount, he's going to make the Pharisees seem like beer drinking liberals. And yet Jesus comes down and has a beer and hangs out with the liberals. I mean, it's just, it, he just goes and basically shows more grace than anyone in history. It's amazing. That's the genius of Jesus. Welcome back to Undiscussed. My name is Eric. And I'm Caroline. And this is the show where we talk about things that Christians should talk about, but often don't. And we've got uh, a wonderful guest with us today. We've got John Tyson with us. Welcome, John. Welcome, everybody. Thank you for having me. And John is uh, with us uh, f- from Australia via New York. That's great. Yeah, and uh, he uh, happens to be up at a conference for us, and so we we are stealing some time away from him to have a, a chat today. And uh, the topic that we have today is secularism. You know, just a light, light, wonderful topic we have here, talking with you about it. And Canada's very secular. It is. You should be talking <laughs> to me about it. Well... We are going yes. to be. <laughs> That's what we're doing here. We are going to be talking Welcome. to you about it. <laughs> we are on a podcast. <laughs> but yeah, it is true. I, I've i heard it said that Canada's 10, 15 years maybe ahead of the States uh, in terms of secularism, and then Europe maybe even a little bit ahead of Canada in that regard. The, the problem, I think that in, in, is true in some places. America is, uh, it's basically six different countries. It's not one America. So depending on which part of it you are, I think that's definitely true. Um, so I live in Manhattan. It's it's definitely not ten to fifteen years ahead. It's probably reasonably similar. Yeah, I I would guess I would guess that to be yeah. true. Yeah, I'm curious about your part of America. Can you tell us a little bit more? I know you live in Hell's Kitchen. My America. Correct? Your America. <laughs> yes, <laughs> As I, the yeah, you own it. Yeah. Cool. It's, yes. Uh, yes, I live in uh, I live in Hell's Kitchen, which is a fascinating neighborhood deep history a lot of crazy stuff's happened there over the course of time um but there's a lot of superheroes from hell's kitchen is there i I know um who's the blind bloke what was his name oh yeah my husband immediately as soon as he heard where you were from i think that was filmed daredevil's from daredevil Daredevil. was filmed in chinatown i don't think it was filmed in hell's kitchen but but, i think in the comics he's from hell's kitchen yes no i think he's he's like technically from yeah and that hell's kitchen doesn't exist anymore iron fist i think is from hell's kitchen and maybe even luke cage uh Probably. But th- there is a preponderance of... <laughs> if I was a superhero, I would want to be from a place that sounded like Hell's Kitchen. Yeah. So I get it. Oh, yeah. yeah. It's a great name. Already I'm intrigued. I yeah. know nothing about it. Tell me more about this neighborhood. Oh, Hell's Kitchen, uh, you know, it's got, it's got a deep history. It's on the docks. So it basically runs from, depending on who you talk to, 34th Street uh, to 57th or 59th Street, again, depending on who you talk to, from 8th Avenue across to the Hudson River. So it's basically Midtown West. And the docks in the Hudson River basically gave access to you know, tons of shipping. And, and shipping always uh, provides opportunities for crime. So it's historically been a very poor crime-ridden neighborhood. Uh, Walter Russianbush lived and pastored there, to, uh, the street over from me. So the social gospel, much of that was sort of developed and hashed out 
uh, in the neighborhood. In fact, uh, every Saturday night for almost 13 years, I've prayed by Walter Russia Bush's church. It's still got in German, Christ the Cornerstone right there. So yeah, it's got a, a theological history. It's got a, a background of poverty. Um, it's it's post-gentrification now. Um, it's predominantly a gay neighborhood and uh, wealthy restaurants and stupidly expensive apartments. Wow. Mm. And what what about yourself? What uh, what is a, so you say you pray a lot in, in your neighborhood? What does a typical night for John Tyson look like? Oh mate, look, I'm an old bore. I mean, a typical night for me. I am in no, I, you know, Paul must have said, "Follow me as I follow Christ." I've never said that once in my life. <laughs> I mean, you know, I basically, I mean, I. I, I what is, it, what is a typical <laughs> night? I mean, my son's in college. My daughters are just going into grade 12. So my kids are basically totally independent. Um, I spend a lot of time reading and praying. It's a pretty boring sort of scene. And then I talk as the spirit leads as I walk around praying. I sense, uh, you know, I, I try and have a secret life in Jesus that I don't preach about or talk about. So I basically break my day into three prayer quadrants. Okay. But they're not quadrants if it's thirds, thirds. Don't um, worry, no one's keeping track. We're yeah, talking about yeah, secularism, not yeah, math. Yes, <laughs> so terrible at maths. Uh, yeah, so I have a section on intimacy with God, purely enjoying God. I have a section on incarnation where I basically try and pray around, just be open to what God's doing, get a heart for the people, you know, sort of Paul's approach. And uh, then I have an intercessory component where I'm asking God to basically break in and do specific things. So my days in those different departments and depending on which part of the day I'm in, I'm doing that focus is how I'd describe it. I'm curious because I took a look at your Instagram a little bit. Um, where does the photography come in? Because you seem oh, so to walking, post a lot. Yes, walking around praying. Oh. That's like prayer shots, man. Yeah, because every time I've opened up on the stories, there is even like in the past like 24 hours that you've been in Toronto, you've posted some I did go out last wonderful, night have a bit of a, yeah. a stroll. Yes. And I've had to like pause and look and I'm like, where is that in Toronto? It really makes you stop and think a little bit, but I enjoy it. Okay, that's funny. Yeah, I mean, yes. I mean, you know, I'm a four on the Enneagram, which I think surprises a lot of people. I'm basically fundamentally an artist. And um, I have deep, deep lows and highs and a lot of um, angst. Lots of angst. I always feel misunderstood. No one gets me. But I'm almost equally a three. So I'm like really driven to be special, as my wife describes it. So yeah, so I'm I'm primarily artistic rather than um, intellectual or thoughtful. And so my, my wife says the key to understanding me is to realize that sermons are art for me. They're not intellect. And so when people say like, oh, I appreciate the cultural analysis of your talks, I'm like, well, cultural analysis, what are you talking about? Oh, that, oh yeah, no, you know, I just categorize it differently. Yeah. Anyways, a lot of my time walking around, praying, thinking, reading, that sort of a thing. Yeah. Very cool. So I'd, I'd love to dive into the topic at, uh, for today of secularism. And I, I think one of the things that we often try to do in an episode is try to define our terms. Mm -hmm. uh, because depending on how you define your terms will change the conversation. So how would you describe secularism uh, at, at face value there. Well, I want to start by saying I think everybody is basically reading off the same framework, which is uh, Charles Taylor's A Secular Age or whatever. I mean, his his stuff on secularism is 
everybody is haunted by that or referencing that or borrowing from that. So people think secularism is godlessness. It's like getting God away from everything. His basic idea is that secularism means that Christianity no longer holds a cherished position or a privileged position in society. So it's not anti-spirituality. It's just that Christianity no longer holds a central place in it. So it's the, the, the pushing out of the central place or the central square, the dominant position Christianity's held. So in the influx of the absence of that Christian position comes everything, heavily contested space, ideas, ideologies, religion in many ways gets privatized. So it's, 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 it's allowed to exist in your inner world, um, but it's not welcomed in the public square in many ways. So I mean, the, those two components, which is it's, it's, it's a war of ideas and views rather than the elimination of uh, spirituality, and it's privatized rather than public as the two defining characteristics. I think. And would you say that that's by and large negative uh, the privatization or the the pushing out of the public well, I mean, space. if you believe that Jesus is Lord of all things, then it's probably slightly negative. Okay. But I think you're asking it in the view of like, you know, sort of bad Christianity, power grabbing, cultural holding Christianity rather than sort of life giving faith. So. Hmm. Say more about that. Well, I mean, Jesus is Lord of all. I mean, he's establishing his kingdom on earth. I mean, he wants to be Lord of everything. So in some sense, I am very Kuyperian in my view of culture. I'm basically, you know, if, um, if the Anabaptists and the Kuyperians had a love child, it would be me. Okay. So, you know, the, the Anabaptist view of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount as central, you know, the, the, the church doesn't touch culture, the church is culture. And on the other side, like the vision of the glory of God in all things. Those two things are very hard. You can't focus on them at the same time. So they're like lenses. You have to view one or the other. If you squint, it gets awkward. So I think John Howard Yoder uh, and uh, Richard Mao once used to be on tour together, basically trying to talk about how they synthesize their ideas. And I would have been at every show if I was uh, when that was happening. So, so a question then that is begged in my mind is kind of this um i don't even know quite how to phrase it but the fear or there's like a notion of uh wanting to come out and be separate to mm -hmm. that culture is in uh inherently bad because it's secular and so I want to protect myself. I want to build a kind of a bubble around my life, protect myself from TV shows or music or the cultural scene or uh, maybe, uh, you know, Christian education or like come out and, and almost like in uh, extreme case or hyper, hyperbolic case, the, like the Amish or the, the Mennonite. What, what do you see, like, is there good in that? Or should we be um, like trying to draw towards culture and, and influencing it for Christ? What is there's your- so, There's so much in that question. I have like 12 sub points already. I'm gonna lose my, losing my train of thought trying to answer it. But so I wanna <laughs> say this- have got lots of time, uh, feel free. Settle in. Settle so, in. I wanna say this, um, what is happening in the vacuum of the place that Christianity used to hold? Like what has rushed in to fill the gap? is in many ways godless, harmful ideologies. Okay. It's not neutral, particularly around the stuff that's sort of uh, taught to children about 
who God is, what a human being is, what the human body is, what life is. So it's not that the culture is going to influence, it's that the culture is filled with ideological propaganda. So it's not like, oh, you Christians are so worried about the world, it's not that bad. It's it's so filled with secular, godless ideologies, it's unbelievable. So I think in many ways, there's some places where you are irresponsible to expose people in a formational way to the ideas of this culture through the lens of this being true or fine. So I understand the instinct, which is, hey, the Bible says come out from among them. That's a biblical phrase. And um, it's from the New Testament. So it's not like some Old Testament prophetic idea. I understand that instinct, particularly around children in some senses. We've got the covenantal responsibilities to raise our kids. You've got the vision of like them having the law, covering their lives, being aware of the teachings of God. I get all of that. So I don't want to just dismiss it, which a lot of people do like, you silly fundamentalists. Most of us, I think, basically in the same way as the time of Jesus have have the same approaches in some sense. They're almost um, archetypal responses to culture that you see in the ministry of Jesus. So you've got the Pharisees, they have a response, the Essenes, you've got the Sadducees, you've got the Zealots. So one is basically a violent political response, another one is sort of an accommodation response, the other one is a complete separatist response, and the other one is sort of a pietistic response. And uh, Jesus just doesn't go for any of them. Hmm. So I think at some point Jesus may use elements of them hey in this situation you should respond in this way but jesus default posture was not embodied in any of them his was a posture that the kingdom of god is now available and it's breaking in and you should do everything within your power to seek it first in your life now the outcomes that's where i'm a total agnostic we should not to try we sh- i don't think we can control cu- cultural outcomes with a coercive power sense and it model the Christian faith in a, in a winsome way at this time of history. So I'm a little agnostic on outcomes. I believe God controls the outcomes. I'm more committed to faithful cultural engagement in the way of Jesus. So I, I, I wrote a small book on this called A Creative Minority and the subtitle was Influencing Culture Through Redemptive Participation. And that's what I think we're called to do. Influencing culture contains the word fluent, uh, if you're tr- if you're fluent in French, you just speak French. You're not trying; you just do it. And I think that our call in the culture is to basically be like Jesus, and the life of God will flow through us in ways that are appropriate for God's kingdom. I really like that. Someone someone said it this way recently to me, and I it, it has been resonating with me that that Jesus had an extremely robust and strong moral ethic but he was constantly, everyone wanted him at their thing. They wanted them in their home, at their party, at their wedding. He was culturally invited and everyone wanted Jesus at their thing, but he was still, it didn't compromise his strong moral ethic. Yeah, I think you're probably referring to Preston Sprinkles, Sprinkles idea, which which, which I love. I think this is people to be loved, which says, Jesus teaches the Sermon on the Mount and he elevates morality, doesn't lower it. He says, you, you know, don't do that. You think that bad behavior is a problem? If you do it in your heart, you've done it. And everyone's like, oh my gosh. When he comes down from teaching the Sermon on the Mount, he's going to make the Pharisees seem like beer drinking liberals. And yet Jesus comes down and has a beer and hangs out with the liberals. I mean, it's just, he does ministry the opposite way that you think his teachings would um 
put them up. And, and his point is because Jesus is not teaching morality. Jesus is teaching an ethic of transformation. And he realizes that in order to transform people, you've got to connect with them and then bring them into something. So there's, he's trying to break those, those cycles by uh, life-giving practices that invite people in. So, yeah, that's what makes Jesus so compelling. I mean, he, he says, um, look, look at Jesus on sexual morality. Even look at her and in your heart, cut your hand off, pull your eye out. And then he comes down and then the next three chapters of ministry are basically dinner with sinners, sinners with disreputable women. He just goes and basically shows more grace than anyone in history. It's amazing. That's why Je- that's the genius of Jesus. And people fall into one of two categories, you know, and uh, that tension is the brilliance of Jesus. So I'm curious then on an applicable level, um, mm-hmm. what that actually means is even the conversation about secular, healthy, even that word, because I know growing up as a Christian, um, and my parents came to Christ actually in the Toronto Blessing, which is fascinating. Nice. Um, but the idea of secularism is even something I didn't even fully acknowledge or know about until I was much older and reading from different authors or speakers. So when it actually comes to the, even the whole conversation about secularism, is that even a conversation we should be having? Because the way you're describing how Christ engages with culture is so different than I think the way that Western culture approaches it entirely. Yeah, I think it is uh, helpful to have a conversation about because basically when you, know, when you can name something, when you have language for the, there's nothing worse than having a condition and going to 20 doctors and nobody can diagnose what's wrong. You feel it, you know it, you experience it, you don't have language, you don't know how to respond. And secularism is a good phrase for what I think the church is facing in the West. So I think it is helpful. Um, it's, I don't think it's, I, I think it's, I mean, you know, Keller says this, you know, the most challenging thing the church has ever faced, possibly. Uh, I think it maybe is true. Um, ideologically, it's very, very complex. So I think it is helpful to, to be able to name and respond. But you're doing this primarily to help disciple people. So when you can say to, say to somebody, you know that thing you're feeling right there? There's a name for that. And here's why it's bad news, even though it comes to you in a form that appears good. And here's the solution to it. And I know you think the solution's bad, but the solution is good. That's Jesus. It's, it's, it's very life-giving. So I, I, oftentimes you have to deconstruct the deconstruction uh, in order to even get sort of Jesus mentioned. People often critique my preaching. They're like, your sermons are so long. And I'm like... Yeah, I mean, I can get up and say, here's what the Bible says, it's really good news, but I've got a set, I am doing so much deconstruction of the deconstruction, you know, in order to get a hearing to hear from Jesus. And that's the only reason people are listening to it. They're not listening to 53 minutes of biblical exposition. They're listening to, okay, no, I feel that. Oh, I had a conversation this week, I didn't know how to respond to it. That's what that is. Oh, okay, okay. Now what you're going to tell me is going to help me with that thing? Okay, I got it. So I, I think we we do people a discipling service by identifying and explaining it. it but th- the challenge is by naming it, you now empower all of those other responses to build entire engines, fundraising machines, media machines around those different responses. And I'm not sure that they are helpful. Yeah, that was going to be my next question to kind of follow up with Eric's talking about, you know, the in, the out, the leaving, the separation of how do we avoid fear um, when it comes to secularism and the idea of shame that comes around it as well too. Is that even possible to avoid fear? Because I think of the way like discipleship 
and talking about secularism, naming it is so healthy and normal, but we're in such an age where everything is so globalized that as soon as you bring this idea of, oh, this is happening in the world, and so many Christians surround it and are terrified of it, don't touch it with a 10-foot bull, don't even talk about it. Well, you know, I just have a conviction that the gospel is the truth. It's the truth. It's a true human story. And um, it does require in different settings that we approach it differently. Um, but um, there's nothing to be ashamed of. The, the, Jesus is the most compelling person that's ever lived. You know, so, I mean, it's an enemy of the gospel. I think secularism in many ways is um, at its core. Um, and we should fight against our enemies, enemies of the truth. Um, but you don't do it with fear, you do it with love. You know, so here's the thing I know. Secularism doesn't work. It doesn't work. Hmm. The human heart is made for God. You bear the image of the creator. And uh, so, you know, it, it may work, work in the short term as a coping mechanism or a substitute or whatever, but it just, it's just not true in the long run. Mm. Uh, uh, there's a, an amazing um, Jewish sociologist, uh, Zygmunt Bauman. He wrote a whole series of books on uh, like modernity. Basically, he's talking about secularism. And um, so he wrote, he wrote this book uh, called Wasted Lives. And it's, one of, it's a short book. And he's most famous for his book called Liquid Love. Uh, so, yeah, Liquid Love. And um, anyway, his basic idea is this. It says the book's called Wasted Lives, and he basically says uh, in an industrial zone, in a factory, basically commodities go into the factory, the factory does its job, and then two things leave the factory, a product and waste. You dispose of the waste and you ship the product. He said if you compare modern society to a factory, the tragedy is that what we're shipping is a higher standard of living than ever before, but the waste is human lives. And so we've got the highest standard of living that we've ever had, but the highest rates of depression, divorce, despondency, hopelessness, trauma, addiction. And so the society that we're in right now, the secular society that's like radically trying to get God out of it is basically destroying human lives in many ways. So I'm very, very hopeful that the good news of the Jesus the good news of Jesus presented properly with integrity, with the body of Christ, uh, living the way of Jesus in the world is incredibly good news for this time of history. That's really helpful. Uh, just hearing you say that, it crystallizes some thoughts that have been kind of percolating. You know, we've got two kids, 13 and 11, and they are constantly wanting to watch the shows that their friends are yeah. watching and be a part of the things their friends are doing. And, and and our answer, our answers to them are increasingly insufficient for them to, yeah. to say no to the to the things that are bad influences on them. And I keep I was having a conversation with my son, and I was saying, you know, the reason why your friends think it's okay and I don't is because I care about your soul, and I care about what's happening on your insides and how it's it will help you form. And, he, and he's, oh, Dad, I don't care about that. <laughs> I was just about to say, thirteen-year-olds don't care about that. <laughs> yeah. And he's, I said, yes, I understand you don't care about that, and that's why we're having this conversation. But it's like this conversation of like why it's harmful and 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 all of that. It, it's helpful. It's helpful for me to just frame it in a slightly different way. And yeah, parenting, parenting in in a secular society is a completely it's a completely different topic. Um, which I have some thoughts on. Oh, but um, yeah, we have to do better than it's wrong. <laughs> you can't. It's bad. Um, you know, as soon as you say it's bad, it's like awesome. 
Batik was good. Let me check that out later. Let me get the password for that. Let me watch it at my friend's house. My, I, I'm, I was the worst. I mean, I'm a huge worldview world formation content guy. So my kids all know that whatever you want comes through the pathway of understanding. So, um, you know, I make them listen to podcasts and like do reviews and write book reviews for me. And all of these things are basically gateways to the things they want. And they're deeply motivated because at the end of it is the thing they ache for, but they're going to come through my doors. So when they get it, they're going to be like, oh, I see what you're talking about right now. So like my social media research and uh, that I made my kids go through before they were able to get social media was like legendary. My kids still, <laughs> I still, to this day, my kids say, oh my gosh, but that was awesome. I understand it now, you know. Oh, that's wow. funny. That's incredible. I'm so intrigued now. I know. Now I'm like, what are these resources that you got? Actually, this brings me to another question of actually understanding secularism. Is there ever a point where too much understanding or too much knowledge about the thing itself can be dangerous? I sometimes think back um, of conversations I've had with friends or other people or even supporters of our ministry um, who may be curious of, oh, transgenderism, for example, that's a very huge topic right now, is knowing too much about that glorification of that kind of lifestyle. You know, did you guys have the TV show Mad Men? We did. We did indeed. We have everything the States has. Okay. Well, that's not true. Well, Our Netflix You just got is... Chick-fil-A. Come on, tell the truth. I know. You just got it. I'm actually probably in Toronto. There there was one. I think there's one in the Calgary airport. Okay. But I'm, I'm, I'm getting a no from Laura. Anyway, here's Our my point. Our audio technician. Um, gee, that was the, maybe the best show ever on television, Mad Men, in terms of slow burn character development. But remember what Don Draper said is like, if you don't like the conversation, change the topic. So culture doesn't tell us what to think. It tells us what to think about. And it's, it's, a, it's a war of attention. And so all the psychological research shows that whatever you thought about last grows in your mind. And so you know, the, how, how information basically takes on importance in the human psyche is fascinating. And uh, it's by talking about it, you, re, you basically give it legitimacy. So the challenge of that, the reason of your, your podcast exists, is that there's things you want to mute and put into pers perspective and at the same time talk about so that people aren't terrified of them and completely neglect it and have the unintended consequence of making everybody either filled with angst or obsessed with it secretly. So, It's a hard balance. It is challenging. So I'd like to just take uh, all the most controversial things sort of nonchalantly. Now, I don't mean unpastorally, tremendously pastorally aware of the complexity of these, but it's like, hey, let's just talk about it rather than like, oh my gosh, this is, let's just talk about it. So I think you, yeah, right sizing it, um, right sizing it is important. It's the old classic, magnify the Lord with me. I mean, our attention should be on Jesus and we should have our eyes on him and we should talk about him and he should always be the focus. You know, one of, the, one of my friends says, never leave the Gospels. Whatever Bible reading plan you're on, if you're not in the Gospels every day, it's a bad plan. So we should, Jesus should continue, and the way of Jesus and his vision and his heart and his kingdom should always be growing in our minds. So th with that as central, you begin to weave in sort of Jesus and human sexuality, Jesus on money, Jesus on community, Jesus on power, Jesus on all those sorts of things. But got to have Jesus at the center of it all. Mm. Hmm. So I'm, I'm curious, as you've traveled and spoken at conferences and, and are a pastor yourself, what are some ways that we can learn from what the church is doing poorly around the conversation of secularism? Uh, 
what I think the church is doing poorly. Um, so in a, in a, I put that in a couple of categories. They're over-identifying with politics out of fear. So they're basically granting too much power to politics. Um, that's big, big in the US in particular. Um, yeah, so people get drawn into debates. Uh, you know, here's what's going to happen. There's going to be a president between uh, 20 and 24. And then there'll be another one between 24 and 28. And there'll be another one between 28 and 32. Yep. <laughs> so, so, I mean, in some sense, it's like, why are we giving, why are we imputing so much meaning to this political moment? And we're doing this because it, we're doing this in two things. Number one, this is a, this is like one of the unintended consequences of secularism. You remove the supernatural, and you still have to take the categories that define it, good and evil. But you just you just imbue them to human beings. No Satan, no demons. You turn people into Satan. You demonize people. No God, no Messiah. You turn people into angels, and you have a messianic people that you're looking to to fix things. So we that's an unintended consequence of secularism. We we're wanting too much from people who can't deliver on it. And then churches get sucked into that. So rather than sort of staying calm and, um, you know, they, they either do too much or too little. I, I'll tell you something that's interesting, though. I've seen more. So I've been a pastor for 22 years, uh, almost 15 years in New York. And I've seen more people leave the church over politics right now than any other thing I've ever witnessed over Trump. Wow. Mind-boggling. Mind-boggling response. So the church is not doing politics well. Uh, they've, they've, they've been seduced into, I think, power, uh, over, trying to get back in the public square, over-identifying with uh, political figures, that sort of a thing. Str struggling badly, failing, losing a generation. Uh, the, the other problem is because this generation is completely ahistorical. So they have no reference points that transcend their lifetime. Not, none that matter to them. You know, like, I don't care about myself. It's like, I don't care about American history. I don't care about the founding fathers. I don't care about the constitution. You know, so when I became a U.S. citizen, not one of my friends could pass the citizenship test that I had to take. Wow. Not one of them. Even my smartest friends, my Ivy League friends are like, I don't remember any of that stuff. So yeah. we're ahistorical. So as a result, um, you know, we get sort of caught up now and this is all there is. And if this is all there is, it's a tremendous burden to try and cram eternity into the present, you know. So the church is failing around politics, I think. Where else is it getting it wrong? Oh, you know, just basically powerless moralism. You know, uh, so Jesus is, is has tremendous power. The person of Jesus lived a miraculous life, and um, and I think the church has very little supernatural power. It's just a bunch of ideas and content, and um, kids get that for free on the internet. You know, so they're not showing up to just get content which they can get like on this podcast for free. So if, 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 if they're not at church hearing and encountering the wonder of the kingdom of God, the living Jesus, the manifest presence of Christ, if they're not being struck by the mission of God, you know, um, so we're basically losing a generation's imagination about the kingdom of God through powerlessness. So we're not doing well there. Yeah, and I, I think there's no expectation of power. I could, why would I expect that God's going to show up in, in a miraculous way, I think is, is a dialogue that I hear. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's a, so again, like everything, that's why you have Bethel. So you have the liturgists and you have Bethel. And they're both as the biggest, most popular things in their sort of spheres. You know, we, we, we're drawn to the extreme because there's tremendous uh, confirmation in the extreme of whatever we're feeling. 
So it, it feels so good to be around people who are like, at last, people who doubt like me, or at last, people who ache and believe for power like me. You know, we're very, very drawn to that, which we long for. And uh, all the actions in the sort of in the, the um, strong cultures, not in the weak middle cultures, you know. Hmm. Wow. Sorry, every time, like, <laughs> podcast guests, I'm like, oh, man, I could just sit here and listen. Here we are. Here we are. Here we're we sitting are. here. We're sitting here <laughs> and listening. Let's keep talking. Yeah. It, it, Caroline is enjoying, she's got her enjoyment face I, on. I this do. Is, this is I'm just, for this is listeners. making me think That's deep so things. Yeah. We, we say this all the time, but every time we hear, you know, pretty much every guest we have had is fantastic. And it just yeah. really makes us even reflect on the way that we dialogue about this particular topic. Um, but yeah, to go on a more positive note, I think I'd just be really curious to see, you know, and hear about your thoughts of what do you think the church is actually doing well when it comes to dialoguing about secularism? Um, what can we actually celebrate? Again, I think it's, um, it's, I mean, it's a time of giant contradictions. I mean, that's what secularism is in essence. Um, I mean, you know, look, I mean, look at, I don't say this lightly, look at Kanye. What the heck is that? Amazing. What is that? Um, what is Hillsong United? Hills, it's a, Hillsong United is a miracle, is what it is. So God will always have, you know, raise people up in whatever it is that sort of embody his heart and do his thing. So I, I, um, I think the church is realizing the gift of secularism. There's a lot of downsides, but the gift of secularism is that like a lukewarm moralistic faith is just not worth keeping. And so most of the decline in the West is people who probably didn't believe in the first place losing, you know, basically sort of cultural faith. And I'm not, I'm not sure that's bad. Um, so, I, so what's the church doing right? I think it's calling for stronger discipleship. It's, it's calling for whole life discipleship. Um, it's broadening its theology. It's wrestling more deeply. It's coming up with a more intellectually satisfying, existentially enjoyable version of the faith. Um, you know, it's, it's in, some, in some sense, the church is maturing. It's maturing. Um, M. Scott Peck had a uh, had his book uh, on spiritual growth, and he basically said that, that spiritual growth happens in the same way that natural growth happens. Four stages: you basically have the infant, does nothing; you have the child, you have the adolescent, you have the adult, and um, each stage requires something different. So the in, the infant is a consumer. Infants make no contribution to a home. So frustrating. You have a kid, and then they just do nothing. They eat and they make a mess, and then they sleep, and then you do it all again. You shouldn't expect infant sleep. I, I think that's a myth. <laughs> really, <laughs> you, but you don't. You shouldn't expect an infant to contribute. So all of the critique of just like this is consumer church. I'm like, if they're a new believer, I hope they're consuming. That's how you grow. Crave pure spiritual milk. Then you have the child, and the child needs one thing. And you know what that is? Certainty. That's what kids need, man. Daddy, is that good or evil? That's good, good, good. Daddy, is that bad? That's bad. They need clarity. They need certainty. Adolescence, the next stage of growth, is about challenge. And, and kids just, uh, teenagers challenge everything. Why? 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 I don't want to. I don't have to. It's like that's part of their self-actualization. They're not taking for granted things that have been told to them. It's a period of discovery. But the healthy person becomes an adult, and the adult contributes. That's what they do. So I, I think in some sense, um, along the journey of faith, 
we go through these stages, you know, where we're just total consumers and everything's black and white. It's so certain. Then you go through this period of rebellion where you question everything. What's happened that's sad is that people never mature. And so they get stuck in this process of challenge. And I see a lot of people coming out of that challenge and maturing into adults who contribute. So in some sense, it's, it's what they call the second naivete. It's not an adult believes many of the same things that children believe, but the price they paid to believe it is mature and nuanced and costly. So when my kids say, when they're little, is there magic in the world? And I have to answer that question. Well, the answer is yes. But for them, it's easy. It's fairies and it's wands and it's what, but for me, it's like, you know, magic is hope in the face of overwhelming doubt. It is life in, and, and, and courage in the face of horrific evil and challenge and despair. So yes, there is magic, but that magic costs you to believe in it. And I think that's what's happening to the Western church in some sense. People are paying the price. They don't want to just become, they don't want to challenge everything. They want an adolescent version of faith. They want to mature into adulthood. They want to contribute, but they realize the cost. And I see as signs emerging of people willing to pay the price to believe in an enchanted world again, but it's not naive, simplistic, or um, childish. It's fought for childlike faith, and that's hard. So I'm, I think there's people getting that right. I'm very excited about that. Hmm. I'm interested then, do you think we've improved as a church culture when it comes to secularism? As you kind of mentioned that you feel like we're maturing. Again, very hard to uh, speak about the, the church as a whole, I think. It is true. Yes. Um, secularism is a threat and a gift. Hmm. And the challenge is that we're often responding to the threat and gift in the opposite way that you should respond to those two categories. But when you do respond in the right way, I think it can be it can be a gift, you know? So again, it makes us think more deeply, makes us throw out our sophomoric responses, makes us love more completely and, and, and really love like Jesus talks about in the gospels. Yeah, it makes us, um, it makes us care about the supernatural it makes us realize that truth is important. It makes us understand the consequences uh, of boundaries and uh, godly design, those sorts of things. So it's, it's, secularism is an opportunity for the church. Wow. I'm curious as to whether what kind of resources people can look at or read more about or listen to. I know you mentioned your own book. It was yes. called A Creative Minority. A Creative Minority, Influencing yeah. Culture Through Redemptive Participation. <laughs> what a great plug right there. <laughs> Is there any other kind of stuff that you would recommend if people want to just know more about how do I dialogue about this? How do I talk about this? Oh, you know, so there's a Canadian bloke uh, that you may be familiar with, James K.A. Smith. Do you know him? You should have him on this. He's a genius. Um, he so he wrote a book. Most but, so if he's listening to this, then then maybe we will. Yeah, um, podcast so, at pdc dot com. <laughs> he uh, so Charles Taylor wrote a book called A Secular Age. It's just a whopping book. I've only ever met one person who finished it. It's, wow, it's a big, hard, dense book. So he felt like it was so important. He wrote a summary of that book called How Not to Be Secular. And it's sort of a two-page, um, uh, sorry, a 200-page summary of, of Taylor's key ideas. Uh, I absolute, That book changed my preaching. And I watched my preaching uh, basically reach non-believers in an unprecedented way by adopting some of the key insights from that book. So direct address to the skeptic in the room, 
uh, undermining their, you know, acknowledging the angst, undermine the core presupposition, like those sorts of things. So I, I would off anyway. So that that book has been tremendously helpful. Uh, he's got a book out right now called On the Road with Saint Augustine, um, and uh, I'm loving that book. Oh my gosh, he just shows why. Um, basically, Jesus is satisfying. I've got a couple of pastor friends who are all pastoring in secular cities who I feel like, and, and they're getting like a wide listenership and readership and it's because they're dealing with this. So John Mark Comer is mm. uh, one of my mates, Mark Sayers in uh, in Australia at Melbourne Church, Dave Lomas uh, at Reality San Francisco, um, Pete Hughes, uh, who's at KXC Church in London. So th- these are guys who are like eating, sleeping, living, breathing in the midst of secular culture and trying to follow Jesus well on it. And uh, so I, I recommend all of, you know, their podcasts and uh, the things they've written. So Incredible. Huh. On our show, we like to give our guests the last word. And normally we throw it wide open, but I'm, I'm going to break the rules. Okay. Uh, so I would love to give you the last word and kind of like a pastoral response to secularism. Uh, so as we, as listeners of the show and even as us, um, what is a pastoral response? So you say sometimes we get it right or we're attacking it in the wrong direction. Uh, how would you respond to that? And then we'll, we'll close. Okay, I've got two responses. Can I sneak those in? Yeah, that, okay. of course. I've got two responses. One is the core practice. And, and one I think is the other response. It's this, it's um, you've got to work your faith all the way through. Doubt is a part of faith, not its enemy. So, um, but then you've got to let it be rebuilt past the sophomoric naive version of your faith. And that faith will be unshakable. That mature faith will be unshakable. So um, it can be traumatic for a child to lose that childlike sense of innocence and simplicity and wonder. And those years of challenge can be very, very hard, but you cannot stay there. And if you keep walking with God and, and you'll see his restoration process, um, I, I believe God will meet you and then he will rebuild something beautiful. Deconstruction is easy in many ways, but building out of a pile of deconstructed rubble is real work. And that's the work Jesus seems to be doing. So don't fear it. Don't give up on it. S- stay the course. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Your faith will be better in the end. Deeper, richer, stronger, truer, more meaningful. So that's what I would just say, people stay on the journey. Uh, the key practice for me uh, in secularism is the practice of prayer. Prayer punches a hole through the roof that says there's no supernatural realm and brings God in. What sort of prayer? Any sort of prayer. Any way that you can connect with God and he can connect with you. Prayer is the most important practice in a secular society, as far as I'm concerned. It's the, it's the way we stay connected to Jesus. It's the way we stay spiritually sane. It's the way we deal with our angst. And um, so if you get good at any practice of the Christian faith in a secular culture, get good at prayer. So Incredible. Well, thanks so much for being with us, John. It has been truly a pleasure to have this conversation. And that's our goal, to, to model and to have a great conversation about different topics that Christians should be having, but uh, aren't. And so thank you for being here. No worries. What a joy. Thank you for having me on. Thank you. We'll see you next time on another episode of Undiscussed.